This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the events, issues, and people that are shaping our world. I'm Mike Cosper, and with me today is Russell Moore, CT's editor-in-chief, and Hannah Anderson, a writer and CT contributor whose work is focused on gender, socioeconomics, ecology, spiritual formation. Today, we're going to talk about what's happened since the midterm elections, including Donald Trump's announcement that he's running for president in 2024, some new data that shows how non-denominational churches have become the largest group of churches in America, and the Respect for Marriage Act, what it means for same-sex marriage and religious liberty. We'll also talk a little bit about why people apparently hate brunch. So stay with us. All right, so we're about two weeks out from the midterm elections, a little less. Um, Things have gotten clear. Uh, We're at a moment now where the Senate looks like it's going to remain in Democratic hands, regardless of what happens in the Georgia runoff. The House is going to be in Republican hands very narrowly. NBC this morning had the count being 221 to 214, but they also said it's still plus or minus two, which means it could be as low as 219 to 216. So very narrow margins there. As I look at the results, it seems generally true that the most hardcore of the sort of Trumpy MAGA politicians, uh, election-denying politicians in particular, most of them seem to lose. Um, But we also found ourselves in a place where there was not a clear mandate for either party. We talked about a little bit of that last week. I think it's because it's clear now, it's, it's worth visiting again. And In particular, Hannah, I wanted to start with you. You've written a great deal about the divide between urban and rural communities and the disconnect between just the worlds they occupy, the worlds they live in. I'm wondering how you have watched this election unfold and seen those dynamics play out in those communities. Yeah, so for listeners, I live in a white working class community in Southwest Virginia. We are deeply red. We are always going to be red. Um, and I know hindsight is twenty twenty, but I have to say I was 0% surprised that there was no red wave. Um, it, I did not hear the energy on the ground that would have led to that. And in fact, among my friends and neighbors, there was even a pinch of irritation um, that I kind of heard between the gaps, you know, reading between the lines. You know, obviously, like I said, we're a red community. We're always going to go red. Um, But I was beginning to see some just pushback on some of the uh, rhetoric that I think plays differently in other spaces. And in particular, I saw some subtle pushback against the kind of school board rhetoric, the kind of um, sense that the public school were the enemies or that public school teachers were the enemies. I think that maybe plays better in suburban districts, but in our community, um, public schools are like the bedrock of the community. They are holding so many things together. They're the source of a lot of care 
care and provision for children that would fall through the cracks. Our public school teachers are our neighbors and friends. We go to church with them. And in particular, um, when some of the rhetoric around books and libraries was coming up, I began to see people posting on social media, just support our teachers. Um, and that's not the kind of thing that you see coming out of, um, especially from public school teachers. So for me, I was not surprised that we didn't have this red wave because among the demographic I live in, it just wasn't catching. The rhetoric that played in suburban communities didn't play here. Well, so how about you? As it's taken a much clearer picture now, are you, is it making sense with what you've observed and the conversations you've had as you've traveled? Well, first of all, uh, Hannah, I think Hannah is exactly right. I mean, even in suburban communities, I'm in a suburban community that might be one of the epicenters of uh, school board kind of uh, craziness at the meetings. It's always going to be a, a, a huge argument and a debate. But, but if you actually talk to the people who are there, uh, a lot of them are not parents who are coming in to to scream at the school board members and so forth. And the mm. parents, even in this community, uh, I think that has started to, to wear really, really thin with the culture wars directed toward teachers and, and, and principals. Uh, one of the things that's startling to me when I, when I look at the results now a week, uh, a week or so out is the fact that in every one of the swing states, the election denial candidates lost. Uh, especially in terms of Secretary of State races, which was really, really significant going into uh, going into 2022. And what's also significant is that even when afterward there are conspiracy theories where the election was stolen from us and so forth, it's almost become boring. Mm -hmm. uh, people don't even really pay attention to that uh, right now and, and simply move on. So I think that's significant. It's going to be a crazy year with that slim of majority in the House already. Uh, I'm talking to members of Congress who are just saying it's going to be a wild year because Kevin McCarthy uh, has so little leverage uh, at all over the, the Republican Party in the House. Nancy Pelosi did, even though she had a slim majority, but she she had the kind of leverage with her, her members to make that work and was always more powerful than she appeared. That's not going to be the case this year. Yeah, I I wonder, too, in, in terms of how the expectations got set up for all of this, to me, it just points back to the way that just the, the distorting effect of media, particularly the distorting effect of social media, the most shared, exciting, energizing stuff in terms of what goes around is always the wildest and the craziest stuff. The worst examples of what somebody found in a school library or the worst examples of, you know, hate speech or violence or, you know, memes or whatever it is, that stuff gets amplified in a way where I, I just wonder how much of an effect it has on all of us and kind of shaping what we expect uh, so that we we would have expected something that was a lot more wildly polarized than we did. Are those of us who are writing and commenting and, and contributing to sort of the media environment, which all three of us do, are we getting duped a bit by that momentum, by that noise? Ironically, both that and the complete opposite. So one of the reasons why people thought there would be a red wave, red tsunami is because of all of the extreme rhetoric on social media, but also because... People, we expect what we have seen before. And so just looking back at the historical trends, 
that's just a natural result in uh, in the first midterm of a of a president's administration. And so it seemed as though that was going to happen, even with extreme candidates who could never be elected uh, in any other time being swept into office. And that didn't happen. We're just in a, a, a time in American life where so often we're saying this is not the way it works. This is not the way it's ever happened before. And so we have to I think we have to get accustomed to that. Hmm. Yeah, it seems to me that there's a bit of a lag time in our reorienting ourselves to what's going on. And I observe this a little bit, even among the younger vote. I have teenagers. My daughter just turned 18. She voted in her first election. And among her friends, the kinds of things that they were saying and were up in arms about, I didn't see reflected in the polling. And my instinct as a mom is because teenagers don't pick up the phone and don't text you back. So like there's a bit of a gap in even getting to people to find out what they're thinking, um, particularly among the younger voters. Speaking of younger voters, CT had a story this week about young evangelicals, their enthusiasm to vote, um, turning out in in high numbers, higher numbers than usual. Uh, We will link to that in our show notes. Um, Russell, I'm, I'm curious if if you had a chance to look at that that data and and had thoughts on what you're seeing there as well. Well, I think just general, I think it's really difficult this uh, soon after an election to divide the electorate up into uh, religious uh, groupings. I think we'll see that a little bit more clearly later on. But what we do know is that there was this massive turnout, relatively speaking, of Gen Z and uh, and millennial voters that again you go back to what what one can expect that's always the mirage you're never going to count on younger voters coming out uh, to to vote. It's the villages right. uh, in right. in Florida, the retirement communities. They're the ones who really turn up to, to turn out to vote. And so, when somebody says we're going to have this massive uh, this massive group of younger voters, it it always sounds like, oh yeah, that's George McGovern in 1972 thinking <laughs> that he's going to be elected with college students and hippies. It never happens, but it is now. Uh, you actually are seeing that starting to happen, and that's going to change. That's going to change politics in American life and culture in American life really dramatically. Because mm-hmm. as much as we think that people change and evolve over time uh, politically, which to some degree people do, you're really set in terms of how you start to see the world, and especially how you see what's dangerous and what you don't want. Uh, mm-hmm. at a very early age. That's going to change things. It is interesting to imagine uh, that we're just in this moment where the playbook really has been thrown out. Because there's a sense in which that was true. Like A lot of us were looking at politics seven years ago and going, wow, everything's changed. Everything's yeah. different. Um, and And so much of the shock right now, again, for those of us who follow this closely, so much of the shock right now is like, well, all the all the rules were broken. And it's kind of like you're saying, you know, I think it's really true. Like, well, the rules have been broken for a while. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're just seeing a, a new iteration of it. Um, well, another big transition this week or another big uh, moment this week came on Tuesday night. Donald Trump announced that he will be running for president again in 2024. Uh, this was looming on the horizon, uh, something he indicated was probably going to happen for a little while. Reception for the speech was was fairly mixed. I mean, you have kind of the diehard supporters, people like Lindsey Graham and Mike Huckabee were very excited about the speech. You know, uh, 
Graham and Huckabee both essentially said, hey, if he can keep this tone, which was kind of lower key, serious, slower of speech, you know, if he can keep this tone, if he can keep away from the more sort of fringe comments, he's going to do great. He's going to roll right into office. At the same time, you know, the New York Post was a, a major supporter of Donald Trump. Their coverage of it was simply the front page uh, said, Florida man makes announcement, and they buried it on page 26. Uh, maybe most starkly was uh, National Review. They had an edit editorial from the editors. It was simply called No. The opening line was, to paraphrase Voltaire after he attended an orgy, once was an experiment, twice would be perverse. <laughs> so there's a lot of momentum away from Trump, even from people who were very supportive uh, of him at the time. I'm curious... My instinct, and again, maybe this goes back to what we were saying earlier, that I, I'm slow to see the world change. My instinct is to say, this feels too soon. This feels, this feels too quick to say, okay, we're moving on. You know, the outcome of the election tells us everything we need to know. Conservatives, Republicans, they're going to move on. Uh, do you think we're calling this too soon? I was going to say the response to me actually feels very consistent because if you think back to the 2015 primaries, um, it was very tepid response initially with Trump. It wasn't until he proved himself to have um, a certain amount of um, energy and power and capacity to win that people started throwing their lot in with him. And then for the last six, seven years, it's been this calculus of can he get us what we want? And so right now, I actually see this same calculus taking place. And so whether they support him or not support him is really the calculus of can he win? Can he get us what we want? And I think folks are saying, no, I don't think he can, especially after um, midterms and uh, everything else is swirling around him. So I don't know if people are going to abandon him, but I think right now he's not very powerful um, in people's, they're, they're evaluating, can he deliver? And it's never been, um, you know, this for, for the establishment. It's never been this question of do we align with Trump and his philosophies? It's can he get us what we want? And I think people are just saying, no, we don't see him as viable. Yeah. And a big a big part of it is a, a friend of mine, Adam Kinzinger, who's a member of Congress, uh, said just the other day, and I think it's completely right, that a lot of what happens with Washington um, power brokers, especially members of Congress, elected officials, it's not so much about what do we need to do to get power as much as it is, what do I need to do to avoid being miserable at the local Lincoln uh, Day uh, dinner right. of, of the Republican Party? Or as one uh, United States senator uh, said to me, who was very uh, hostile to Trump and Trumpism, but said, you know, I have to go to Hardee's on Saturday mm -hmm. morning and the, the, the old guys are sitting around there. I don't want to deal with them. So we, we just have to just hope that this will this will burn itself out. And that's part of the problem is, and, and Hannah's right, 2015, 2016, uh, the, the consistent message from all of these uh, sort of national leaders is, well, it, it won't happen. It, it'll, it'll work itself out, but it, it won't work itself out with nothing. Mm -hmm. And so there, there has to be uh, there there has to be some way to say here's how we're moving on, and I don't see that yet. Even though what I do see is a very um, 
uh, w- when I saw that speech, I didn't see somebody who was disciplined and mature. I saw somebody who seemed to have lost his edge mm-hmm. uh, and, and mojo because so much of his success is about being funny, about being mm-hmm. entertaining, um, uh, those sorts of things. And this seemed very much reading off of a, a teleprompter from a script that Stephen Miller wrote seemed very American carnage uh, inauguration speech, but didn't seem like the the Donald Trump that uh, that right. we've seen before. Yeah, my comment about it was it was um, it was like it's like how I imagine it would be going to a fish concert. You know, it's kind of <laughs> long. It's kind of self indulgent. There's a, there's a lot more enthusiasm in the crowd than what is happening on stage seems to make sense. Yeah, but you do see these moments right where you go, oh, I get it. You know, mm-hmm. and Trump rallies have always been kind of that way. There's this. This this intensity for the people who love it, love it. And and I agree. I think he held back so much Tuesday night. What I wonder is how much of that was uh him listening to the advisors saying, you gotta do this, you know, because of because of where things are and all of that. But you just saw like the twinkle in his eye when he started to say something about China and something about, you know, the mm-hmm. election. You know, who knows what's going on there? Mm-hmm. And it just feels to me like it's it's a matter of time until that version of him comes back, um, comes roaring back. And I think that's the, that's what sets the climate for the kind of conflict and tension inside, uh, the, the right and and inside evangelical churches, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, that I think we're all bracing ourselves for. Hannah, go ahead, please. I was going to say, I don't know that people want a moderated Trump. I mean, the secret Mm -hmm. sauce of Trumpism is that energy, that passion, that willingness to say what nobody else will say. That's what got the response. So I don't see how a moderated Trump actually gains followers. There's there's nothing there that sets him apart from someone like DeSantis. Um, it's, it's Trump being Trump that is what appealed to so many people, and which was so terrifying that it appealed. Um, but yeah, that, that kind of moderated Trump really took me off guard. Well, so you wrote this week about how things might seem better, but be worse. Can you yeah. talk about that a little bit um, in terms of where we are? Well, I'm talking to uh, to pastors constantly who are saying, oh, I'm just bracing for a 2024 uh, election. Think about how uh, the 2016 election and the 2020 elections were still not recovered from that. It's going to be really uh, divisive. And I don't, I'm not sure that it is. And and the reason that I'm not sure that it is, is not because I think, well, we've all sort of unified and, and healed our, our divisions and moved on. It's because we've become used to this. We, we've become accustomed to this. I mean, I, I was looking, it really struck me, uh, Maria and I were working on our will uh, a while back. And I had a, a funeral service for myself, which I had uh, written out um, not long ago, the sort of thing I do. And uh, <laughs> But I noticed looking at it, how many people that I had put down to speak or to serve as pallbearers no longer speak to me. Hmm. Uh, and, and a lot of that um, coming right out of uh, Donald Trump and the, and the 2016 election. A lot of those divisions, they've just, we've become accustomed to them. And and not not only that, it's this entire sort of mode of being that Trump inhabited uh, that we had seen before. And we'd seen a lot of it in uh, evangelical life, in in some 
very entrepreneurial sorts of of uh, figures, uh, but really not that way on a presidential uh, stage. That has changed the culture, and we're we're accustomed to that happening. So that you look around and you see in denominational gatherings or in church business meetings. The, the entire way that people will speak and act uh, is something that before would have been completely inconceivable because there would have been a sense of, of shame about acting that way mm-hmm. that's just gone. So mm-hmm. I think it might be that we're so numb to all of this that we we don't even expect anything different. And then you add to that the fact that we've kind of sorted uh, when it comes to to Trump, that was the big trauma in 2016 with people saying to one another, I don't even know who you are anymore. I mean, I would be saying to people I know, you really think this person is fit? You really think that this person has the character or the mental stability to be president of the United States? You really think this guy's a baby Christian? And and they would be saying to me, I can't, I can't believe that you're not on our side and you're not on our team. And what about judges and so forth? So there was that just sense of you can't believe it that I really think is is mostly gone and has been mostly resorted. That's not necessarily a good thing, but it's where we are. Yeah, I was gonna say, I think we're all coming out from after the earthquake. And we're getting the lay of the land. And it was Trump, but it was also COVID. And I don't think we've yet to reckon with how much was destroyed, where the destruction is. Yeah. I think it's going to take years before we actually understand what happened. And so we're coming, I kind of imagine us coming up, kind of surveying the landscape and realizing that a lot of things are going to have to be rebuilt and some things are never going back to what they were. Um, and that's going to take time to identify, but it's also going to take time to grieve and then to get our bearings. And I do think it's reflective, what you're saying, Russell, as well, is reflective of the data you just keep seeing over and over again about pastors wanting to quit, you know? Um, So many people in ministry that I know, and and Hannah, you and I have talked about this a lot, um, people just worn out from the the culture war stuff. Um, I guess the last question I would have is in, in the midst of this, do you see signs of hope? Do you see, a, is anything making you optimistic about someone, you know, a, a voices that are, that are wanting to sort of reunite the church, recenter the church around the gospel, around love of God and neighbor, um, signs of life that are worth celebrating while everybody's kind of looking around and doom scrolling on their phones and all the rest? Well, one thing I see is it's becoming clearer who's in it for the gospel, at least in, in my partnerships and relationships. It's becoming clearer who actually is pursuing the mission of Jesus Christ in terms of cultivating um, people's lives and souls. And you you can begin to kind of catch each other's eye across the room. And I think that's the thing for me that's been the most um, disorienting and has to adjust is that it's not going to be the people I expected to catch eyes with. It's going to be people that are working in a completely different space than I'm even aware of, um, but also beginning to identify and see each other as 
yeah, we actually care about the cultivation of um, not just the Christian message, but of people's souls and their formation, um, particularly within the life of the church. So I think as we talked about a sorting happening previously, I think there's going to be kind of a new discovery of saying, who are these new partners that God is bringing in this work? Well, and that's and that's exactly what's happening is and I don't want to downplay the trauma because it really is of a lot of these relationships that have been pulled apart and and shattered. I'm still not over it uh, at all. And yet you, you look around and you see God always in Scripture it fragments, pulls communities apart in order to form new communities. And they're, they're almost always shocking sorts of people who are gathering together. I can't believe the Apostle Peter and these Gentiles in, in Galatia were actually finding our, our way together. Uh, all that happens just over and over again. And I see that happening right now where people who previously they just thought, oh, we're, we're in completely different kinds of tribes and they've come, they've come to see, oh, wait a minute, we're actually on the same page. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, I mean, I think all the time I was uh, laughing with Beth Moore about this l- last night about sort of some of the little shots that I would take at her uh, in my 2007 uh, self. And, I, I, you know, she, she, I think she seemed to me back then uh, like a a video game character and and I did to her we, we we were not we weren't real people and then in the middle of a lot of disruption we not only found each other but said oh wait a minute we not only actually really like each other but we're on the same page and and we really are about the same thing i see that happening in local church communities in on on the mission field all kinds of other places. And I, I think there are going to be really good things coming out of that. So the, mm-hmm. the, the bad response, I think, would be to say, okay, well, we're not unified. Let's get back to building Babel instead mm-hmm. of saying, okay, maybe Babel was bad. <laughs> and maybe the fact that we're being dispersed a little bit is because yeah. God's doing that. And what does God do after uh, Babel? Abram comes out of Ur and, and something mm-hmm. new starts. And I think that's what's happening now. Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast, Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so before we dive into the next topic, where we're going to talk about shifts in sort of denominational life in the U.S., we're actually going to play a quick game. This is uh, Russell versus Hannah. I'm going to name two denominations or communities of churches, and you're going to tell me which one is larger. 
Um, and if you have an impulse to say in a sentence, can't be more than a sentence. If you have an impulse to say uh, uh, why you think the one is larger than the other, you might get a bonus point for that. Um, and this is winner take all grand prizes. It's going to be great. We will start <laughs> with you, Hannah. Um, your two choices are Orthodox Judaism and the Orthodox Church in America. Which one is larger? Um, I'm going to say Judaism. Okay. You are correct. So that's one for Hannah. Russell, the Reformed Church in America or the number of Amish congregations in America? Uh, I would say Amish congregations. You are correct. Two, that one shocked me, actually. There's almost three times as many. There is three times as many. There's 912 uh, RCA churches and almost 3,000 Amish churches. Yeah, and the and the, so, uh, the Amish churches don't have a press office office or that's a right. public relations. Right. So they're surely underrepresented. Right. So, okay, Hannah, gonna, this one's going to be a little tougher. Polish National Catholic churches or Syriac Orthodox churches? Oh, that is tough. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm going to go with Syriac. You are. Incorrect. Mm. It is the Polish National Orthodox Church has 97, and there are 47 Syriac Orthodox churches. Okay. One-to-one, Russell, Presbyterian Church in America versus the Seventh-day Adventists. Seventh-day Adventists. You are correct. Hannah, back to you. Hindu yoga and meditation (laughs) congregations versus Theravada Buddhists. Oh, uh, Mike. Um, Just buckle up, Russ, because your next one's pretty good. Let's do Hindu yoga. You're correct. Mm-hmm. That's, yep, yep. Uh, 1378 to 566. Mm-hmm. All right. So, Russell, this is, uh, you, you can win with this one. And if you lose, it's a tie. Shinto versus Zoroastrians. Shinto. You are incorrect. Oh. There are there are more Zoroastrians in the United States than than Shinto, which means that you're a t- you're tied. So we're gonna have to figure out how to split your prize. The prize is a wrinkled audio adrenaline poster from 1997 <laughs> that still smells like Surge Cola and CK1. So, okay. So to the topic at hand, this week at CT, we published this story about the growth of non-denominational churches in the United States and. In the past decade, the number of non-denominational churches has grown by almost 10,000. They outnumber any other single denomination, like if they were a group, which is kind of funny, like they're, that's the whole point is they're not a group, but we'll group them um, in the sense that it, it seems to reflect a number of trends and things that people are talking about in all kinds of places about loss of trust in institutions, loss of trust in authority. Let me start with you, Russell. Do you see a through line between those kind of loss of trust, loss of root stories and this? Or do you think there are other dynamics, you know, other driving dynamics behind it? Part of it. I mean, I think I think part of it is 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 something else going on in American life. Uh, but part of it is the loss of, of trust in some of these uh, denominations. I I'm part of a non-denominational church. I belong to a non-denominational church after having been all of my life uh, from 
the moment of conception in Southern Baptist churches, never even questioning whether or not I would be in Southern Baptist churches. And we had a, a situation uh, sometime uh, earlier in the year where my son was telling somebody uh, how to get to our church. And he said, it's at Emmanuel Baptist Church. So the kid put it in his GPS and, well, there is an Emmanuel <laughs> Baptist Church in Nashville on the other side of town. And he said it took him to the wrong place. And I said, Samuel, we're not an Emmanuel Baptist Church. We're at Emmanuel Church. It's not a Baptist Church. And he said, wait a minute, you mean we're not Baptists? <laughs> and I went, well, yeah, we are, but our church is, uh, and, oh. and it was, it was one of those moments where I, I kind of said to myself, hey, where have you been? Uh, but, but the other part of me said, you know, that's, in in our uh, family, the very idea of being something other than Baptist and Southern Baptist is just inconceivable, but that is completely unusual. Most people, I mean, I still feel guilty every morning that I'm uh, that I don't belong to a Southern Baptist church, and my wife has to talk me out of that. But it's because I I went through all of the programming, and I don't mean that in a negative way at all, toward being a, a Southern Baptist. Nobody else does. When people move from, from town to town, that's not what they're thinking about. So some of that is just what's happening. But the other part of it is when you, I think a lot of the denominations still act as though that sense of obligation is there. You, you, you have to be uh, part of the Southern Baptist Convention or the United Methodist Church or something else. And that's, people are, are realizing, okay, we don't have a moral obligation to belong to these entities. You really have to, uh, you really have to show us how being part of you is advancing mm. the kingdom of God. And that's, I think, something that has completely changed. Mm. And how are you seeing this in, in the community you live in? Yeah, I was going to say, I think Russ is exactly right that this is reflecting something larger that's happening, um, particularly in the United States right now. And I think it also has to do with a loss of rootedness and identity, um, family and ethnic identity. So churches, particularly in the American story, denominations have been so tied to waves of immigration. And as we have begun to disperse, you know, to Russ's point that you show up in a new town, you move away from family, you move away from your roots, and you don't necessarily go to the denomination that you were raised in because you've broken those ties just by movement. Um, and so we live in a moment, especially in United States culture, where there is so much shift, there is so much disconnect from place and our families and our um, ethnic origins that it's, it was only a matter of time before that happened. Um, it it kind of manifests in denominations where you, you don't denominations have become more about choosing to be in them than being born into them, I think, to Russ's mm -hmm. point. And then once you have to make the choice, the denomination has to make the case. Um, and I just don't think those cases are being made as strongly right now. Well, and I think I think the other dynamic here is not just the rise of non-denominational churches, but the rise of people who think they're in non-denominational <laughs> churches. I mean, one of the things that I that I would see, and it would frustrate me, uh, serving in Southern Baptist uh, life, is how many churches. Uh, people have n had no idea they were part of the SBC, and you almost had to get to a certain level of new member orientation before <laughs> they would tell you that. It's kind of like you, if you get to the fourth level Scientology, you find out about the UFO cult and all that. But until then, you don't know, okay, you're, you're in deep enough, you can know we're SBC or we're United Methodist or whatever it is that, that, that mm -hmm. the church is, because 
because the congregation is saying, we, we really don't want to be swept up in all the drama of whatever is happening in those uh, institutions. And so there are a lot of people who think they're in non-denominational churches, but who, mm-hmm. are, who are in churches that are, are very much within their denominations. I think that is going to even accelerate these trends. Yeah, I remember there was definitely a trend, what, 10, 15 years ago, where we were dropping Baptists from our name because there wasn't yeah. the association. And so um, folks would end up in churches that were denominational, but not know it for sure. Yeah. I mean, in the church planting world where I lived and operated for a long time, I mean, that was a strategy people were coached into. Yeah. You know, it's great that your denomination wants to give you money more than more than anything else. And in, in the conversations I was a part of, it was the SBC was giving money. It's like, hey, it's great that those people want to give you money. Here's how you take it and hide the connection as well as possible. Yeah. Um, because it was a liability, especially for for a lot of the people that we were, you know, that I was connected to or planting in urban communities and um, uh, amongst more progressive, you know, communities having connections to the Southern Baptist church was a problem 20 years ago. And I can imagine now, so, you know, now it's even more so. And not over the things, I mean, the conversations that would happen on the other side of the room uh, for me would always be people saying, well, it's because, uh, it's because people are offended by our strong stance for the inerrancy of scripture or for the exclusivity (laughs) of Christ. That's not the reason that they don't (laughs) want this affiliation. It's something, it's something else. Right. So the other element of this that I think is interesting and that, that I wonder how much it's driving this is just technology, how, how different mm-hmm. things are technologically now than they were in 2010. You know, the availability of streamed content, the, the growth of the, the, the video, you know, multi-site phenomenon, you know, that's taken a lot of hits in the last few years. And, you know, I produced a podcast that took some shots at it, you know, as well. But the phenomenon's alive and well and growing, and it's, it's, a, it's a real expansionist um, model. And what I've seen both in my city and elsewhere is how many of these small neighborhood churches that are Methodist churches, Church of Christ churches, Southern Baptist churches, you know, a large mega church moves into the high school down the road and they start broadcasting sermons and all of that. And, you know, one thing leads to another and the mega church is able to say, look, we grew by 3000 people this year. And there's also this, you know, this graveyard of seven or eight little churches that died uh, as a result of it. That seems really short-sighted to me. And, Mm -hmm. and I think it's probably reflected in these numbers. I guess I wonder how much do you see that contributing to the doom of the small denominations, the small communities? I think it's a factor in some local communities. I don't think it's the driving factor. And one of the things that's worrying me right now is not so much that there's a, a rise of non-denominational churches as opposed to denominational churches. I mean, obviously, I'm part of a non-denominational church. Now, albeit that took people releasing a swarm of bees into my house to get me out of <laughs> out of the home where I was for all this right. time. But even so, it's it's not that that worries me. It's how often I'm encountering Christians who don't go to church at all. Uh, which which is happening more and more, and not just with sort of, I'm not talking about the college kid who's kind of nominal and has gone off and hasn't found a, a church. I'm talking about people who who are involved in parachurch ministries and so forth, but who will say, we came out of a really awful situation and we don't go to church. Mm-hmm. That uh, that I'm seeing a lot more, and and that's heartbreaking. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I think the story, what, 10 years ago was the rise of spiritual, but not religious. We're looking at Christian, but not religious. Yeah. So mm-hmm. they're still maintaining that identity. Um, but they there's something that's broken in the spe- specificity of their identity. So we would say Christian, but we won't say I'm Baptist or I'm Presbyterian or I'm Methodist, um, moving away from that kind of denominational affiliation. And now it's taking one step more where you know, I'm kind of moving away from the church gathering as a whole. And obviously COVID was part of exacerbating Mm -hmm. that and all the scandals and everything else that has kind of rocked the evangelical church in the last few years. Um, My concern um, with the rise of non-denominationalism, and I don't know that this is a a concern so much as something that is going to happen is, um, you know, denominations had a very good way of keeping their systematics intact and they could lean liberal or, you know, they could go progressive. But one of the things that happens in non-denominational spaces, it's very easy to take a cafeteria approach and um, begin to just pick up kind of theologies that make sense to you in your moment, in your place, and then try to package them together. And not all theologies are meant to go together. Like, um, you know, there's an internal logic to Presbyterianism. There's an internal logic um, to Baptist theology that runs from soteriology right into polity, into ecclesiology. And so there's this kind of potential for a muddy theology to emerge mm-hmm. as non-denominational churches are emerging. And I think that's actually part of what we're seeing in the polling where people don't have a clear grasp on very fundamental um, teachings of the Christian faith. And I wonder how much of that is linked to not being catechized in denominations and not having that kind of structural sense of their Christian faith. And it's just um, much more parachurch, much more marketplace. Um, So we have this vague sense of being Christian, but not a specific one. Yeah, but I think that's happening in the denominations too, and in in some degree, to some degree, even more so, because you have a lot of the denominations responding to who are the angriest and um, and loudest people, and and we're going to adjust to to those people in a way that really does erode the ability to have those internal consistencies of of what it means to be. I mean, if you're if you're in a situation where in, in in my uh, Baptist background, uh, the, the very idea of somebody saying, oh, we ought to have a Christian nationalist uh, fusion of church and mm-hmm. state where blasphemy laws are, are enforced. There, there is absolutely no Baptist confession of faith or church in the history of the planet. Make Baptist great again. I, I'm <laughs> right there with you, Russ. Yeah. Like, could we could we recover that kind of understanding of heritage and, and um, a more cohesive you know, just systematic. And I think all the time about Richard Mao said one time about how denominations are monastic orders, essentially. And so each of the denominations have said, we've taken a vow to emphasize this. If nobody else does, we're going to emphasize this. So the Lutherans say, we've taken a vow to emphasize justification by faith. Presbyterians, we've taken a vow to emphasize the sovereignty of God. Baptists, we've taken a vow to emphasize personal regeneration. And that all of that actually helps everybody else because it, it contributes to the body of Christ. And when that starts to be negated, it, it affects everybody, not just that particular tradition. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 
6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This week, a bill advanced in the Senate uh, called the Respect for Marriage Act. Um, it's a bill that will require states to recognize same-sex marriage across state lines, essentially making law what was decided in the Obergefell decision a few years ago. It uh, still needs to pass the Senate, still needs to pass the House. Biden still would have to sign it. So there's a long way to go still, but it seems likely this is all going to happen in this kind of lame duck session here. It surprised a lot of people, though, that 12 Republicans signed on to the bill, including social conservatives, people like Mitt Romney. Days before the vote, the Church of Latter-day Saints endorsed the bill as well. And as I was looking around, you know, it was interesting to me, there just seems to be a lot of conflicting perspective on what, you know, what this thing means, what does it mean for religious liberty and the rest. So, for instance, there's an organization called First Amendment Partnership a, uh, you know, a religious liberty advocating organization. Um, they published a letter by a guy named Douglas Laycock, a professor of law at University of Texas, and a, a bunch of people signed on to it. They said, hey, this is, this is a good thing. It, it gives some deference to diversity of opinion. It protects tax-exempt status for organizations that don't affirm same-sex marriage, and it's exemplary of the kind of compromise that we need. At the same time, Kristen Wagner, CEO of Alliance Defending Freedom, who's the legal entity that has defended a number of people who've been sued for not baking the, you know, wet, not baking the wedding cake, not making the flowers for a, a gay wedding. Uh, their CEO published a statement and said, right now, government officials across the country, including the Biden administration, argue in court that individuals and religious organizations who love and work with people from all walks of life should face civil and criminal penalties if they don't abandon their beliefs on this issue. Make no mistake, she said, this bill will be used by officials and activists to punish and ruin those who do not share the government's view on marriage. So let me start with you, Russell. I know you've been at the heart of a lot of these debates for a long time. Where are we? What, what's true about what's being said about this bill? Well, one of the things that's interesting to me is, is just talking over the last 24 hours or so to people who voted uh, on this question and with Latter-day Saint uh, officials who've been, who've been working in this area for a long time is how people, uh, people assume that they're voting for or against completely different things. Mm -hmm. So th there will be uh, one person who's thinking, okay, I'm, I'm voting to affirm uh, same-sex marriage in the civil arena because uh, Obergefell's not going anywhere. And even if it does, what are we going to do with all of these people who are already civilly married. Uh, and then there's someone else who, who doesn't even, isn't even thinking about the marriage aspect of it, but saying, look, there are some really robust religious freedom uh, uh, protections here. And that's what a lot of what's going on with the Latter-day Saints. I mean, the headlines are Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints affirms uh, same-sex marriage. Uh, what they think they're doing is what they've been advocating from the Utah Compromise uh, on, which is to say, okay, we're not going to be able to uh, we're not going to be able to change where the culture has gone on marriage, but we can have uh, protections for religious institutions and others. 
That's not a position that I agree with or did or ever did agree with, but I always understood what they were trying to get at. And we're not, uh, I always said we're, we're different on how we're trying to achieve the same objectives. We're not really on separate sides. And I think a lot of that showed up uh, here. But the bigger question uh, for me is, is cultural, which is to say, n- not only do you have this this overwhelming vote in the United States Senate and a pretty big vote in the House before that on this, but with with very little uh, ripple. I mean, the, the, it tells you where the country is uh, on this issue, which is important for those of us who hold to uh, historic, uh, uh, historic Christian uh, sexual ethic, marriage ethic, to understand. Because if you don't, if you assume, oh, well, if we just... Uh, if we just hang on a little bit uh, later, everybody's going to come our way. That's not happening. So if we if we have a view of uh, marriage and of sexuality that's different from the larger culture, we have to know how to talk about it, how to seek to persuade people of the beauty of it, the goodness of it, uh, and not just assume that it's going to correct itself. Yeah, I think that's that point that things can't be assumed anymore is exactly spot on. And particularly so when you talk to younger voters and younger demographic, Um, it's not just that young people are um, coming to different conclusions about these questions. They are framing radically different questions to begin with. Like the the entire way they approach um, the issue is so radically different than perhaps our generation knew how to frame it up, that this is a moment to if we do nothing else to kind of take stock, to pay attention um, to what is being put forward, how it's being put forward, what is the actual argumentation that's in play, um, and perhaps learn and recalibrate in the sense of how we engage. I've had an interesting conversation about this recently as well. I talked to a school administrator who was describing how there was kind of an internal controversy at the school about an assignment that was related to a student talking to a gay friend. How would you communicate with a gay friend about this? And it created a mild controversy locally. And I was talking to this administrator, and, and one of the things she told me is she said what, what was surprising to us was how many people who have enrolled their kids in this school and signed documents that articulate almost all of the basics of Christian belief, who then come back and are surprised to say, wait, you're not a you know gay marriage-affirming you know, they're shocked by it. And these are, you know, she was describing it. She said, these are not people who don't go to church. Like these are people who've been members of evangelical churches that are not affirming churches or anything else like this. It's just fallen so far below the radar. And and it seems evident that churches themselves are, are avoiding the subject as much as they can as well, or at least in, in the case of some of the churches that she was referencing as well. It's there's the the danger of sort of the go along to get along, yeah, or or, or the cruelty. Uh, so yeah. you, you have some places where the uh, because it's it's framed in such a culture war way, people say, okay, I have I have gay friends, I have uh, I have gay family members, and and what I hear is all about the the oppositional nature of it, and people swing and overreact to the other extreme. I think the challenge, and maybe this is a topic we can get into in more detail in another day, is to me, part of what's difficult with politics is the tension between the ideological and the practical, right? Mm-hmm. This is this is the moral, this is the ethic we want for our, our community. But 
you know, politics is the, what is it, the art of the possible. Here's, here's this, you know, at a minimum, and this seems to me where the argument for a, a Christian to support the bill kind of comes in and makes sense, is someone saying, okay, the, the ship has sailed, this is, this is where the, the law of the land is, this is where the culture is, I'm going to get behind this thing because I want to be a part of the conversation to carve out the space for us in it, right? And that seems to be the justification. That seems to be what you're hearing from the LDS. There's this carve out for for who we are. And I, I suppose that the thing you're left with is like, well, where does conscience and conviction, like how do those things govern the way you discern what what's appropriate inside of uh, a judgment like that? I, I think it's 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 easy to make that dogmatic when it's you know when it's when it's very gray and the the current is pushing in a aggressively different direction does there come a point where you say okay we've lost the we've lost the war here mm-hmm. but let's fight now to preserve our you know our space our ability to have a little oxygen with you know here yeah but i think there are other ways to to do that. I mean, I think there is a way to recognize uh, we're not an election away from uh, from redefining marriage back to what it used to be in the civil space in the United States to recognize <laughs> that. And at the same time, I don't think this is the there. There are other ways to protect uh, religious institutions without the all of the confusion that comes with this particular uh, bill. But I mean, I think what one of the things you're seeing is not only do you have this question happening among uh, Christians and and uh, religious believers, those who hold a traditional uh, marriage ethic, of saying how do we protect the institutions that really do matter here, while at the same time on the other side. Uh, secular uh, progressive uh, organizations who are seeing that they have uh, often gone too far because they they assume because most Americans are okay with same-sex marriage that that means that they're okay with bulldozing over uh, any dissenters. And that's for the people who, and again, I, I, I don't uh, support the bill but for the people who did, who I talked to, the biggest thing that was important to them was the language that there are good faith uh, reasons to be uh, to, to have a, a, a view of traditional marriage, that this isn't the same as bigotry and, and racism. And that concession was really important uh, for mm-hmm. religious liberty uh, fights going forward. Again, I think there are other ways to do it, but I, I think that is a valid point. All right, last topic for the day. This week in the New York Times, there was an article about a, uh, a review of a new show coming called The Big Brunch. It's coming from HBO. It's been created and hosted by Dan Levy, who many people will know from Schitt's Creek. He's uh, Eugene Levy's son. Most of the first half of this article was about essentially how brunch is the worst, <laughs> which which kind of surprised me and kind of didn't. I'm, I, You know, Anthony Bourdain in, in Kitchen Confidential has some wonderful rants about how horrible brunch is and... Um, you know, one of his quotes from the book, he says, uh, uh, he says, remember, brunch is only served once a week on the weekends. Buzzword here, brunch menu. Translation, nasty old odds and ends and $12, $12 for two eggs with a free Bloody Mary. So two quick questions then. Is brunch the worst? <laughs> and then the second question is far more important. What is the best way to eat your pancakes? Well, I totally understand why people think brunch is the worst. And I think there (laughs) might be a bit of sour grapes in play here because brunch requires 
um, a pace of life and it, it suggests a leisure of life that I think people just aren't experiencing. Um, we have no capacity for Sabbath in this culture. And so when you see someone brunching, there is a little bit of either this person isn't pulling their own weight and they're sitting there, you know, very leisurely, or I wish I could have that space. I wish I could have that rest. So I don't think it's the food itself so much as what it suggests, you know, at a, at a larger level about rest and Sabbath and taking time. Um, so yeah, it is the worst. And your pancakes. <laughs> Oh, uh, pancakes. Perfect pancakes are banana and black walnut with maple syrup. Oh, okay. All right. Oh. Russell, is brunch the worst? Mike, I, I don't think I've ever been to a brunch in my life. I mean, <laughs> I, I grew up in a working class Southern Baptist community in Biloxi, Mississippi. I don't think anybody knew what brunch even was. We knew what I mean, it was enough just to use the word lunch without my grandmother, uh, who would say dinner for lunch and supper for, for dinner. Oh, yes. Don't yeah. you think you're sophisticated? I mean, so a brunch wasn't even a, a category, and I don't think I've ever been to one even since. What I do, what I have been to, are breakfasts happening at night, uh, mm. like at the, at, the, at the evening dinner. That's... That's not terrible. I think that's uh, that's good and, and always appropriate. And with pancakes, what I do, and it's, you know, my family doesn't like this. I don't <laughs> like the syrup. I just like the pancakes and then to take uh, raspberry jam or jelly or something like that and slather it over the top of it and mm. eat it that way. I will agree. I think brunch is the worst. There's something <laughs> culturally just weird about it. The best way to eat your pancakes, this is a Jamie Oliver recipe. You, uh, when you make the pancakes, you sprinkle in a little sweet corn and huh? crumbled bacon and then oh. you, with butter and syrup. Give it a try. Thank Jamie Oliver and me. Now I'm hungry. Thank you all for listening to The Bulletin. We will be back next week to talk more about the events, issues, and people that are shaping our world. Thank you, Russell. Thank you, Hannah. We'll see you all soon. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. Executive producer, Eric Petrick. Host and producer, Mike Cosper. Producer, Azure Phelps. Graphic design, Brian Todd. Social media, Kate Lucky. Director of operations, Matt Stevens. Music, Dan Phelps. Production assistants from Core Media. Coordinator, Beth Gravencourt. Audio engineer, Kevin Duthu. Video producer, John Rowland. This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys, you know? A pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just These Guys, you know?